Well, hello. Uh, welcome back to this podcast, HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, and so I'm currently talking about uh, the third volume of the Selected Letters, which I'm going through um, a chunk of letters in each episode. Um, in this episode, I'll be looking at uh, letters that Lovecraft wrote between August and November 1930. As always, I'm going to look at about 20 of them, breaking them up by the authors that he is corresponding with, um, while I guess just kind of skipping over or being really loose with the Robert E. Howard letters because uh, we'll have a whole series towards the end of this podcast. I think maybe 15, 20 episodes, I guess, where we'll really break down the Means to Freedom uh, two-volume collection, which has all the letters back and forth between Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. So that is something um, I'm really looking forward to. There's about 130 letters there. I'd say about maybe a quarter are, are just like they're they're numbered like letters that they're, they're that, that they were written but don't exist anymore so there's actually a few less than 130 and some of them are just note cards and, and notes and, and not that substantial but there's still like a good 60 or so really long in-depth letters that uh, i think will be a really really good way to wrap up the series so for that reason i'll just we like for instance in this episode we'll look we'll have actually two robert e howard letters that i'll just mention but uh not go into too much detail about because I'll, I'm kind of saving that for later. Um, I'm also currently starting to to read the next set of short stories that uh, Lovecraft wrote from 1929 to 19 well 19 basically 1930 1931. There's I think it's only three three stories that he published under his name in that period, but it's, they're long. They're like some of his most massive and substantial stories: Whisper in Darkness, At the Mountains of Madness, and The Shadow Over Innsmouth. And then we got a series of revisions to look at too. So. Um, getting started looking at that and, and recording some of my thoughts about those too but um but this episode will be focusing once again on the letters so um what are the themes here in this section well one big theme that comes up a lot here is um well he talks a lot about his quebec trip which i think i mentioned in the last episode and he started talking about this but uh it really is a major theme in the letters in the late summer the fall i guess of 1930 where he was thinking a lot about that. And that really seemed to have a big impact on him. So much so he's, he wrote a travelogue. I've, I think I maybe, I don't know if I'm going to try to get my hands on it and read it because I think he covers a lot of this in some of his letters. Um, but in fact, a letter I think that's coming up in the next episode is, is almost like a, a standalone travelogue almost of the Quebec trip. Um, what else is going on here? Well, he's written Whisper in Darkness, and I think he sells it in this period uh, he wrote that in the second half of 1930 somewhere it's a it's a great story i really enjoy that story because uh, it gets into the folklore a lot it's a fun thing about it um and then um some things that are repetitive like talking about poetry with uh, elizabeth tolbridge talking about uh witchcraft talking about um cosmic horror, his disgust with Victorianism, his ideas on modernism, cities, landscapes, and, and culture and identity. All these things are are explored here. So it's, you know, there's there's not so many like massive and super important letters in this section, I think, but uh, there's still a lot of interesting things to mention, I think. So uh, especially in one of the Clark Gatchin Smith letters is something I really want to to center on so a bit of this might be a little bit repetitive but i think it's still worthwhile to to kind of make a note about about each of these letters um so the first uh correspondent i want to talk about is elizabeth tolbridge uh, we've been hearing a lot about his letters to her in the past uh, few episodes i think he averaged four or five out of 20 letters in the last few episodes uh, this time he we only have two in the selected letters and again that doesn't mean he didn't write other letters to tolbridge it's just what ended up in the selected letters which is very very heavily selected and each letter is really edited so when i say we got one letter from so-and-so or two letters from so-and-so it doesn't mean he only wrote them once in that time period it's probably likely he wrote other letters it's just they're not included for whatever reason um that's why it's so great that other like the presses are putting together these uh correspondence with individual writers getting us both sides of these discussions um you know and there's more and more of those books coming out and maybe it's worth looking at all of them at some point i don't know um but I don't know. I, I think I'll, I'll I kind of got it. I'll, I'll sketch out what I'm going to do, and I think I'm going to stick 
with with that. I'm, you know, I already got another sixty episodes, I think, in the series actually mapped out. So that's enough. That's enough, I think, to get a good idea about Lovecraft. Um, there's a, there's a we could overdo this, I guess. Um, anyways, um, Elizabeth Tolbridge. So first we have uh, actually I, I was looking at my notes here. He doesn't say much about poetry to her in these two letters. Uh, he has been talking a lot about poetry to her. Um, but not in these two. Um, anyways, the first one is dated uh, August 7th, um, 1930. And this is really uh, where he talks quite a lot about his trip to Quebec, um, which really has a big influence on him. What he likes about Quebec is he saw this as really a, a kind of survival of French culture in the New World, right? So the, in the same way he likes to look at like English survivals in the New World, you know, that's one reason he seems to like New England so much. And he kind of looks at his own mother's side of his family for that kind of aristocratic heritage, you know. But he's well aware, and he mentions this many times, that other cultures have their own kind of traditions. And, and that's why he says the same thing when he goes to the South, right? Like Charleston and Richmond. He sees these as special places, too, each kind of holding their own, their own um, civilization, in their landscape and their architecture. But he found in Quebec really a reflection of that old, even pre-Anglo French civilization, something that survived, even though the English came and conquered Quebec and, and you know, Canada became an Anglophone place largely. Quebec, not just in its language, but in its, its landscape, its architecture, kept uh, a deeper a deeper heart to it. And he doesn't say too much about it here, but he does in other letters. Later on, he writes, for instance, um, actually, in this letter, he, he starts out writing like, I'm going to go to Quebec. And then there's a later, which is after Quebec. So he's like, I'm really looking forward to going to Quebec. And then he writes to her after a break. He says, and it did surpass all my fondest expectations. Never had I seen another place like it. All of my former standards of urban beauty must be abandoned after my sight of Quebec. It hardly belongs to the world of prosaic, prosaic reality at all. It is a dream of cities, walls, fortress crowned cliffs, silver spires, narrow winding perpendicular streets, magnificent vistas, and the mellow leisurely civilization of an older world. The enclosed gives hardly more than a hint of the actuality. Horse vehicles still abound and the atmosphere is altogether of the past. End quote. And of course, for Lovecraft, that's a very important thing. He sees in architecture and landscapes time travel. Right, which one thing I, I think I didn't mention this maybe directly on the case of Charles Dexter Ward, but as you remember, that story begins with this long discussion of of Providence's architecture and the buildings, right? And of course, that's a time travel story in itself, although it's not going back in time. Uh, you just talk about going back in time to uh, I think it's Clark Ashton Smith a little bit later in in 1930. Um, so he's thinking what time travel story. It's almost like he's the kind of things we've seen shadowed of time. Maybe we're first kind of being worked out in his head when he's, you know, in those in those letters. But that's a future conversation. Um, he certainly does seem time travel as part and parcel of of experiencing landscapes and urban landscapes. If you look at uh, he. Yeah, he the story. He it does that very well for New York. So this is like a report on the. Quebec trip. And it's a really nice letter. It, it kind of sets up what we're going to hear him say again and again about the the quaintness of, of Quebec and, and kind of the permanency, the kind of how Quebec itself is sort of frozen in time. All right. So uh, enough about that. We don't have another letter here uh, to Tolbridge for over a month till October 24th. Um, so again, I think there might be some other letters that we're just not getting here, but this is a uh, this is an interesting one. He talks about the sale of Whisper in Darkness, which I think is a, a, a it's not a breakout story, but it's it's really, I think, you know, I talked about how those three stories I liked before, like uh, there's kind of a looked at them together. Case of Charles Extra War, Color of Space, Dunwich Horror, and they're very different stories, but you can tell there's a different agenda in color in whisper and darkness and at the mountains of madness shadow over in smoke there's something much more cosmic something bigger about them and of course call of cthulhu has that but it's that's a much shorter story so we got three long tales that are all really really epic and and cosmic right i think whisper and darkness is the first of that that turn and you see it in shadow out of time most of the rest of his later stories have that even with um dreams of the witch house 
has that. Um, a few don't. A few of the, the, the tales don't quite go that far, but by and large, he's thinking much more cosmic. And that's one reason he actually writes a lot about cosmic issues in some of his letters at this time. Um, but anyways, uh, he says, talks about the sale of this of Whisper and Dark. So he seemed to make quite a bit from it, 350 bucks, which wasn't a uh, chump change at the time. Uh, and he mentions sell, selling it to Weird Tales, where he sold most of his stories to. But he starts to actually, you get the sense he's starting to feel the limits of, of Weird Tales. He mentions another letter somewhere around here, how Weird Tales is beginning to to decline actually in quality and circulation and things like that. Um, but the other thing he gets into in this letter, if I can find the actual text of it, is, is witchcraft in stories. Um, just a little bit, just a little hint of it, but I, I always like to look for that because it's, I think that's a, I think that book Murray, which cults of Northern Europe is such an important text for him. Um, he writes, for, he writes, for instance, quote, As for my spectrally affiliated New York correspondence, I have not heard again from the grotesque main person, but hear frequently from the old lady descended from Salem, which is she had several moderately gr gruesome legends lately, but in general I find it more natural to invent cosmic horrors of my own than to initialize actual folklore incidents, end quote. And I think that's true. He uses folklore. And he talks about it a lot. We see this. We'll see this in *Whisper in Darkness*. He he really does a lot with folklore and anthropology and science and kind of combining these all together. But he doesn't like rely that much on actual existing folklore, like some other weird tale writers would, like the Wendigo. That's um, Algernon. Who wrote that? Uh, whoever. But. Uh, you know, that's drawing from Indian mythology, right? He'll talk about Indian mythology, but he kind of invents, he puts it into his own um, world, right? But a little, just a little shout out to someone descended from Salem, which is that he's corresponding with. I don't know who he's talking about, but um, it's, it's, it's there. So not too much to say about Tollbridge and this, this chunk of letters, but that's okay. We'll, we'll hear more from their conversations later. All right, next, uh, we got a couple Robert E. Howard letters. And again, I'm just going to mention uh, really loosely what these are about because I'm going to get into the details of these later in this series. Um, but we got uh, one August 14th where he talks really interestingly about world building. That's, it's like he's talking about writing in this selection. This whole letter is actually longer, quite a bit, quite a bit longer than what we got here. Um, but he gets into creating a mythology. And how he created his own mythology, because I think Howard asks him a little bit about about that, and he talks about how he created his mythology, and he's really talking about something that, you know, contemporary writers care a lot about, and that's world building, right? That's such a big part of modern of contemporary culture, right? And it's I guess it's something to be wary, you know, Lovecraft's not the first to do that world world build, but he's certainly notable in the extent he made an effort to world build, right? Connect these gods together and the stories together. Sometimes it's a little bit superficial, like how he has in Whisper and Darkness, the Migos, like worshiping some of the like Shub Niggereth or mentioning Yogg-Sothoth. Sometimes there's a superficiality to them. It's a little bit more like, like uh, just name dropping sometimes, but you get this sense. He, he's conscious that he's trying to create a what later be called a mythos, right? The Cthulhu mythos or world building. I don't think he uses this term, but that's clearly what he's getting into. Um, and he also talks about how he's inspired to create these outer gods in particular. Uh, then we have one on October 4th, which is a lo much longer letter. This is closer to the full length uh, that's in the, the Means of Freedom book. But this one gets into a lot of issues, particularly about witchcraft, crime. And I think this is one of the first letters to begin this conversation that Howard and Lovecraft will have for months and months, actually almost a couple of years, um, about crime. And they contrast crime in different parts of America, Texas versus New England. They talk about gangsters. They talk about the Wild West. It's a fascinating, wonderful, very, very rich uh, dialogue between the two. And we see here one of uh, Lovecraft's first entries into this discussion, getting into uh, New England crime. Um, and this all builds up this is really all about local culture. Um, let's see if I have anything more I just want to say about that now. Um, yeah, he, he also gets into the strong cultural traditions within New England. 
a little bit about Celtic Celtic mythology and witchcraft. And, I, you know, interestingly, these are things that come up right in uh, Whisper and Darkness, which, he, which we know he's writing at this time, uh, around this time. Um, he sells it, I guess, by late October. So I think it was written in like the, the early fall, or late summer of 1930. And he clearly mentions like witchcraft explicitly, local traditions, Celtic traditions, Puritan traditions, and how they have different interpretations of some of these creatures that seem to be dwelling in the Vermont backcountry. Um, so this is stuff being reflected directly in his writings. But I think it's such an important part of his work. But I, I do go check out this letter. If you have access to the selected letters, go read that um, October 4th, 1930 letter to Howard. Um, or just wait for my review of that letter um, in many, many weeks, uh, a few months before I get to that, towards the end of the series anyways. So anyways, that's all I'm going to say about the Robert E. Howard letters for now. Uh, just a preview. All right. Next, Maurice Moe. Maurice Moe, um, old friend of Lovecraft's. This letters, there's only one in this uh, section that we can talk about. Uh, it's dated September 4th. Um, it's, it's interesting. He, he deals with themes he's been talking about before, such as like uh, literary standards. And I think he talked not just to Moe, but to other people about literary standards and how we would determine them. It was actually a major theme in some of the previous episodes. Um, But where he really starts here is he he kind of mellows out a little bit. I mean, I think Lovecraft has this reputation of being like kind of a bit hard nosed about his opinions, and I don't think that's fair. Um, I'm very critical of many of Lovecraft's opinions. I think a lot of what he says and thinks is pretty silly at times, like his Anglophilia. I think some of it's quite odious, like his attitude towards immigration. Um, I think I'm getting a better idea of where all this is coming from, both in the historical context and his own thinking. Um, but he actually says here that, you know, we, we sort of need to calm down a little bit. There's really, and this all comes down to this indifferent universe. We have this indifferent cosmos and human beings are basically insignificant in this broader cosmos. So really, what's the point of having any uh, debate? And he says himself, like, I, my own opinions, my own feelings about things are mellowing a little bit. He writes, the unimportance of life and effort and the purposelessness of the whole cosmos are closer realities to me than they w were then, even though I fully realize, realized them and upheld them in argument. You can think back to his you know, stuff he was writing around World War I, for instance. Going on, he says, I don't get excited about things as, re as readily as I did, for I realize that every different individual has its own subjective world of perspectives and values. And what is it to me whether or not another person's world resembles or coincide with mine. And I think this is, to Lovecraft's credit, is reflected in a lot of his letters where he says, yeah, this is what I think. And his thoughts, you can, you know, most people would read these things nowadays and, and, and find a lot to complain about. But he, he, now, he never really says, you know, you're 100% wrong. Like once in a while, like the Robert E. Howard Lovecraft letters get a little tense. But I mean, when you compare it to political debates you see now online, I mean, they're not, they're very friendly. Um, it's just he's just saying this is sort of what I think or this is my experience and, and you have a different one and he seems fairly open-minded which I think cuts against some of the impressions uh, we have and, and I'll say reading these kind of systematically I am seeing this kind of mellowing out I think some of his earlier letters especially the stuff he wrote in the mid-20s it's just so much nastier uh, than stuff he writes in the 30s um, so he's got this idea that he should calm down a little bit. And he's writing this to Maurice Moe, an old friend who maybe saw this change in him. Um, um, now, he still has this idea, though, and this never really changes, is that with this indifferent universe, all we really can do is is kind of value the local over the, over the, the universal. He says, for instance, Where is it? I can't, can I find it? No, I can't quite find the, the passage where he exactly says this. But he says essentially that, that you know, he's kind of valuing the local over the universal more um, because that's something that's sort of grounded in, in one's own experience. Um, he talks also how he likes plainer writing. But this all comes down to kind of literary standards, right? And, and he writes, 
because it's something he's been thinking about, like in this age of modernism, this age where literature is being kind of thrown in this. Uh, I don't know about the right metaphor. It's just becoming a mess, right? There's, it's become it's becoming a shatter zone. Literature and art in general is becoming a shatter zone, right? Poetry is modernistic poetry, music, which Lovecraft admits he's not the most skilled at uh, discussing. You know, what do you do when everything's being shattered? And there's no way I can say that's good, right? That's, it was easier in the 19th century to say that's a good work of art that fits with the conventions, that fits with, you know, training. That's a good representation of Rembrandt School or something. You could say that, but it's harder to say that in the modern era when you have um, everything kind of exploding out. And I, I'm working on my art history slides for my students for the second semester after Spring Festival right now in China. And you see that with modern art. There's so many different schools. And it is hard to say what's good or not, right? And you got Dada, and you got the cubists, and the analytical cubists, and you got the symbolists, and, and you got the expressionists, and all, all the, and you got the, what's going on in the Russia. It's kind of a mess. Um, and he just says, uh, quote, my valuation of the element of sincerity in works of art and literature has increased to such an extent that I now esteem it as a necessity to perfect expression. In, in taste, I'm coming to value the local more than the universal. There it is. A sign, no doubt, of provincial old age. My standard of literature is slightly risen, so I may impose upon my serious writing a closer censorship than formally taking care to delete that which is trite, commonplace, artificial, affected, ornate, or rhetorically involved. And there's even a criticism of maybe some of his earlier writings. So it's a short little selection, but it's, it's got a lot packed into it. All right, so that's uh, one letter to Mo. Next, we have six letters, count them, six letters to Clark Ashton Smith and, and dealing with a lot of different issues. So let's just go through these. There's six of them spread from September 11th to November 7th for over two months. Um, and this is at least six letters that he wrote to Smith at this time, dealing with a lot of different topics. So there's, there's not a clear back and forth uh, here, but um, let's see what's in these letters. So the first of these is dated September 11th, uh, 1930. And this is mostly about Vermont and it's about working on Whisper and Darkness. And we can tell from these letters that it's it's not just incidental that Vermont is the setting for the Whisper and Darkness. It's really key, you know, to, you know, his thinking. He thinks there's something really special about uh, this part of New England. Uh, maybe it's kind of rural nature or there's something kind of a little bit ancient about it. I, I wonder if like the Quebec trip influenced him a little bit in in thinking about a, like a more pristine kind of rural environment. There's something, you know, kind of hidden and unknown and mysterious about that. Uh, he writes, for instance, um, the race of things employed this method come from outside, but they have an outpost in the solar system on the ninth planet called by them Yugoth and a smaller near outpost amidst the hills of Vermont. I must whip this yarn into its final shape soon. The effect of striking scenery on one's creative concentration is evidently a highly variable thing. I have heard many refer to it as you do as distraction, but in my case, it seems to be precisely the opposite. So this is just another reminder of how much he's influenced by location uh, in his writing. And, you know, that's as much as he hated New York, you got to admit, he did some of his best work, you know, inspired by the New York setting. It certainly did influence um, a handful of great stories. I think The Call of Cthulhu is one of those, like where you get that kind of more worldly, international kind of dimension to the tale, which is kind of lacking in many of his earlier stories. So he talks about the striking scenery of, of Vermont as something that influenced him to write the story. And when you read it, you really get that sense. I mean, some of it's told secondhand, but it's, it's set in these like dark woods and caves and uh, really wild parts of, of Vermont, right? So um, next, September 24th, uh, again to Clark Ashton Smith. This uh, deals with some different issues. This one's uh, a little bit more about his Quebec trip. Um, he gives some notes on that. He gets some notes on the, on the Quebec architecture. He says, I scarcely believe that Quebec belongs to the waking world at all. A mighty headland rising out of the mild, broad river and topped by a medieval fortress. City walls of cyclopean masonry scaling vertical cliffs and towering above green table lands. Uh, and he gets in a little bit about the history of Quebec. Um, and 
is just kind of in awe of, of how it really is a relic of the past. Um, and it really was, ins- you know, inspiring for him. Uh, and again, he kind of gets into this idea that there's kind of an exotic and unique history that's inspiring him to have creative ideas here. Now, in this same letter, he talks about his another trip he goes on to Cape Cod, and he has the same kind of response to Cape Cod, a very, very different location, right? Much more maritime, uh, a much more modern city in some ways tied to like the, the sea and tied to Boston Harbor and tied to the whaling industry and all of that. But it has its own kind of unique geography, right? Writes, uh, to approach Boston Harbor at sunset from open water is something one can never forget. Gray headlands, monolith-like lighthouses, low-lying cryptical islets. What vestertine realm of mystery is it which arises mirage-like from the vapor-shrouded vacancy? Avalon Hills of the Blessed, Tyre, Carthage, Calpe and Abala, Abala, Atlantis, Alexandria, Belay, the city of Never, Mandarin, Peridontaris. So he kind of goes from historical locations to even mythical locations that he's created in his own mythology. Um, but he's getting this inspiration from the sea. All right. So this, this is a great letter for just this reminder of how much the sea really is in Lovecraft's mind uh, throughout so much of his work. All right. Moving on, um, October 7th, 1930, uh, he writes to Clark Ashton Smith. Now, he often, this is one of the examples where he usually almost, he does this almost all the time when he writes Clark Ashton Smith, where he spells his name like one of these elder gods, spelling it K-L-R-K-A-S-H-T-O-N. So Clark Ashton, it becomes the, the name of kind of the god that gets associated. I think sometimes he even throws this into stories as, a, as kind of an inside joke. Um, this, uh, we've seen this before, how he kind of praises the, uh, Clark Ashton Smith works. It works in this case. It's specifically something he created for Lovecraft himself, uh, creating a, uh, an idol of an ancient one of one of these old gods for him. Um, and he's really kind of honored and touched that he has done this. So he, you know, Clark Ashton Smith made something inspired by Lovecraft's own work. And Lovecraft is well amused and and very very grateful for this this creative work that he's engaged in. So it's not much to say, but it's a really touching uh, window into their 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 friendship, their professional friendship. Again, it's a it's a pity that they never met. I think they it would have been a really really nice meeting. Um. So next, October 17th, this is a longer letter to, to Smith, um, which talks a little bit more about literature and cosmic horror. So this is a, a good letter to Smith about cosmic horror. He starts out talking about actually the, a couple of his other works, like uh, um, The White Ship. He includes a copy of The Hound, um, which he doesn't like. He says, I consider this is one of the poorest jumbles I'd ever produced. It was written in 1922 before I began to prove down the verbal extravagances of my earlier prose. So again, see the, the Mo letter where he just says he himself is trying to tone down his, some of his overwrought prose. And you can judge how successful he is at doing that in his, in his later works. I think there's a good case to be made that he does do that. But he kind of gets off this Poe, uh, Dunsany kind of um, influence. Um, but he talks, uh, oh, I think he gave a copy of The White Ship to Clark Ashton Smith. And he's kind of like, oh, this was when I was kind of in my Dunsany mode of thinking. Um, but this all is just a prelude to the real conversation he wants to have, which is about philosophy in his work. And which, of course, is the cosmic horror, what we all call cosmic, cosmic horror. And he, he finds real literary value. Uh, well, he kind of goes through his own work and how he developed this concept of cosmic horror through his various works up to and including uh, The Whisper in Darkness, which he says, ah, by the way, I just sold this work, right? He talks a little bit about uh, Wright and the, the, the stuff going on in Weird Tales, which isn't that interesting. But the real heart here is where he connects all this cosmic horror stuff to, to, uh, to his feelings about what makes quality literature, his own subjective feeling about what is good writing. 
And he just thinks too many writers are are not aware of this the, the fundamental relationship we have with the cosmos, right? And not enough literature actually explores this, and he prefers literature that sort of does. But a lot of other stuff, like the sentimental literature, romantic literature, even heroic literature, tends to overemphasize the importance of, of humanity, right? So he finds literary value in really exploring it, obviously, because that's partially what he's doing. Uh, let me give you a taste of what he writes here. Heroic tales are not unsound so long as they adhere to the actual essentials of life and the human spirit. But when some sentimental poser adopts their tone for artificial and trivial unrealities, the result is too nauseating and wearisome for words. As against romanticism, I am solidly a realist, even though realizing the dangerously narrow margin separating romanticism from certain acceptable forms of fantasy. My conception of fantasy as genuine art form is an extension rather than a negation of reality. Ordinary tales about a castle ghost or an old-fashioned werewolf are merely so much junk. The true function of fantasy is to give the imagination a ground for limitless expansion and to satisfy aesthetically the sincere and burning curiosity and sense of awe which a sensitive minority of humanity may feel towards an alluring and provocative abyss of unplumbed space and unguessed entities which press in on from the unknown world from unknown infinities and in unknown relationships of time, space, matter, force, dimensionality, and consciousness. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's such a great uh, summation of what he thinks the value of, of, of cosmic horror is, right? He's even going beyond what he writes in supernatural horror and literature because he's, he's kind of here justifying more where his own work is turning to, whereas it turns to much, much more cosmic uh, grandness. So next we have a, a letter to Smith on October 31st, 1930. Um, and this is kind of building off some of what he was just talking about. But now he, he talks about science and, and he he's definitely influenced by science. And Lovecraft sees himself as thinking scientifically, right? He's just being a realist about what science is showing, which is we're insignificant. The universe is big. Quantum mechanics, meaning the world universe is kind of unknowable in a way. Um, which, of course, is what the modernists sort of realize, too. I think that's one reason modernist art gets so weird is because you lose that kind of idea that there are scientific standards that we can rest on. Um, but he also thinks science can, maybe not always, because for him, science certainly does inspire awe and imagination. But he's worried here that science often doesn't do that, that science destroys awe. He writes, the progress of science has pushed the idea of a clear-cut universe of cause and effect to the fore and has cut down the area of mystery by unraveling many of the tangles of the human mind, end quote. So I think here he's kind of suggesting kind of the, the more banal, conventional view of science, not really where the frontiers of new science, you know, because when you go like to grade school science class, you're told the world's understandable, right? You give a formula, this explains gravity. This formula explains velocity, whatever, like physics or chemistry. You know, it's all sort of grounded and they say, oh, this is the world can be understood. Right. And I think a lot of people still sort of see science as something that gets us to very clear cut answers. And he thinks that to the degree that science does that, that's bad for imagination. But at the same time, I think he knows and he certainly said this in other letters that science is pushing the boundaries of the noble. And as it does that. There's a space in for imagination because that's right where Lovecraft lives. That's that's where he dwells in this exploration of of scientific awe. Um, now he kind of then connects this idea to his criticism of Victorianism, and he says kind of that's part of the problem with Victorian literature too is this idea that everything can be sort of grounded and understood. He writes when we reflect on the impossible hookum which has tolerated in the 19th century, we cannot regard that some sort of purifying process has been set in motion. Such fantasy as has survived in infinitely superior to all of the best fantasy of the old days, a fact which impressed me strongly four years ago as I was prepared to sketch, uh, when I prepared my sketch of weird literature. He's talking about supernatural horn literature. Um, so he, he can't help but make a little stab at, at you know, 19th century Victorian uh, standards. But he does certainly think art is moving somewhere. He mentions Blackwood, Dunsany, Maykem, and others as people really pushing the boundaries of, of, of literature. So he's not totally a pessimist about where literature is going. I think he's got some hope. Anyways, now the letter I really think is, is important here. 
that really I kind of excited me when I read it a few months ago. And then I reread it again. I'm like, oh, yeah, this letter. This letter is awesome. Um, November 7th. Um, there's a lot going on in this letter. He talks a lot about his own work. But what is the heart here is why he thinks, why, in his, stories, why his stories always have to end with dynamite or an explosion or the eradication of, of some knowledge and why he's always got that warning, right? So we saw it in Call of Cthulhu. It's certainly the major theme of the case of Charles Dexter Ward that we need to erase the past, right? Get beyond the past, move forward, right? Isn't that like The Last Jedi or something? I only watched that movie once, but I remember that was kind of theme there too. Like erase the past, right? Move on. Um, now, you know, Lovecraft agrees with that. It seems that knowledge about this stuff is dangerous for most people, right? And his characters are often people who regret reading that book or regret casting that spell or or following that path, right? Uh, of where just knowledge and curiosity take you. And so he's literally specifically talks about the lurking fear which I talked about many, many months ago in a much earlier episode. Uh, it's a story I like quite a lot, but that story ends with our protagonist trying to blow up these tunnels underneath this um, Tempest Mountain uh, because of all the monsters that live there. They're really the descendants of that guy's family, right? They're old, like, Dutch, inbred Dutch people who inbred with, like, you know, too long mixed in with some other kind of weird blood somewhere and somehow they descended into like underground cannibal chuds or something right and he says um the final dynamiting like my dynamiting of the house in tempest mountain and lurking fear and he's talking about a story called the canal which some other story he read um so like the dynamite in my house in tempest mountain and lurking fear is probably less subtly handled than it ought to yet it certainly sense necessary as a means of explaining why the world hasn't gone vampire whenever a fantastic tale introduces a horror which if unchecked would shortly produce striking visible results throughout the earth it's necessary to explain why these results have not occurred necessary in short to check the full action of the thing end quote so there's i think there's a deep them thematic issue here where he thinks that erasing the past is important for this for the psychology it's it's how we protect the world from some knowledge right but for fantasy literature set somewhat in a real world like uh you know fantasy like horror literature right how is the stuff not get out right how does it not get out that there's a guy murdering campers uh and comes back even though he gets dumped in the water and murdered killed all the time he always comes back to murder kids how does that happen there must be something supernatural going on the press would figure this out right think of Every time there's a serial killer, the press goes crazy with them, gives them a name, you know, and, and pushes the police to catch them and all that. There's a lot of drama around that. But if these things we see in fantasy literature really took place, like there's a werewolf, this stuff would be exposed, right? So you need some device in this tale to rehide it. So there's kind of a, a, a like a, a plot necessity to do this if you want to make, set the story in, in kind of a realistic world. Um, but, and I think a lot of good horror does that very well, right? Um, but, you know, other writers don't. I, I, like, I, I don't think Stephen King, for instance, is, he's, he's got a kind of an opposite perspective. He's interested in digging deeper. He's, he's all about memory, right? But even, in, I think, one of his greatest stories, his, his greatest story, It, he has to invent this thing where the main characters forget, right? So they forget, they come back, they remember, and then they immediately forget again. Right. And, th and that's, I think, that was King kind of following this rule. So that's a really, I think, uh, fascinating thing. But there's a lot of other stuff going on in this this letter talking about his preference for word fiction. And then he introduces something that's going to come up in the next episode in a handful of letters. He writes to Clark Ashton Smith uh, in the in the winter of 3031 about travel literature and particularly time travel literature. And he starts playing with the idea of a time travel story or interstellar voyages. So I don't know. I can't really prove this, but I think it's likely that his thinking that would go into, because where does he have a time travel story? He only really has one. The closest he has to one is Shadow at a Time, um, where you have kind of time traveling body changers, right? These people can take over your mind, but by doing that, they can, they can travel through time, right? 
Uh, so this, I, you know, that's a very fascinating idea of how he kind of works out time travel. But he's talking here about just much more straightforward time travel narratives. But uh, where else does he write one? Maybe uh, the thing on the doorstep has a bit of that. Maybe witches, the witches, dreams of the witch house plays with time a little bit. But I, I don't think we ever got quite the time travel story that he's talking about here with Smith. Maybe in one of the revisions. Well, we'll I haven't read all the revisions yet. But I, I think the closest we get is maybe Shadow of Time. But anyways, good stuff. So this is a nice set of letters to, to Smith. I think usually a lot of his letters are like, oh, I loved your stuff. Here's the stuff I'm working on. It's a lot more career focused. But I think this particular set of letters kind of have a lot of fascinating things in them. But no clear theme. No singular theme that we can say, oh, this is what they were talking about these months. They were doing a lot of different stuff. But definitely pay attention to that November 7th letter um, about the importance of dynamite in horror stories. All right. So next, uh, four letters to James for Ned Morton. Um, yeah. That anarchist that, that Lovecraft was friends with. I love these letters, actually. Again, not, not the most well-connected. I guess we got stuff about deep history here. Maybe that's the closest, but... He talks about that kind of in two letters. He talks about Quebec in two letters, and he talks about civilization in one. So maybe some overlapping themes. Um, first, we have a, a letter December or September twenty sixth, which actually has a, it's a little bit funny because he he's trying to collect a bill. Like he he's here. He's just talking to his friend, like saying, "Oh, like I I did this revision for this guy. He's not paying the bill." Um, here's the letter I wrote to this guy trying to collect the bill. He's like a, some, a neophyte gangster or something trying to, you know, get a debtor to pay up and doesn't really know how. So he writes this polite letter uh, saying, Oh, would you please pay this bill? It's like $7 and 50 cents. And he tries to, it's a little bit passive aggressive. Um, but, and he tries to mix this up with other conversations with them, but he's, he's kind of begging for this money. Um, it's to a guy named Lee Alexander Stone. So he wrote some revision for him, probably uh, nothing that we need to cover in this podcast, if I can find it. But uh, it's funny. He's trying to, he's almost asking more. It's like, do you know how to get this guy to pay up? Um, but that's just a, a little marginal funny note, to note here. The key thing that's interesting is, he thinks he's thinking about prehistory in deep time. I love when Lovecraft does this, and especially when he brings into his stories, right? Again, I, I've been reading Whisper in Darkness again, and the suggestion there is that the Migo had been in Vermont since time immemorial, right? They've been mining the backcountry of Vermont forever. So even the Indians knew about them, but they seem to even predate the Indians. So that's... Uh, it's, it's part of that cosmic turn, I think, that Lovecraft has, is to find this deep history of Earth. It's a little bit in Call of Cthulhu, but not really too many other stories before Whisper and Darkness really drive home just how ancient this stuff is, right? Um, so he writes here, But I do want to make a decent round of the caves. Yes, I noted that mysterious and unexplored side passage, and I've thought of using them in fiction. As for the bodies, trust me to bring a whole raft of them. Extending back to 200,000 BC and before even to the reign of the pre-human older ones and with the appropriate metal artifacts plus manuscripts in Atlantean and Lemurian cylinders. Now, I'm not quite sure what story he's referring to here. It might be Whisper in Darkness. It might be uh, Mountains of Madness. It, it might just uh, it might be something else that he never fully finishes because there's a sense of those stories in this note. But again, quite a lot of fun. Uh, I, I like this letter because of him, his moaning about how to collect this, this get this bill paid. Um, now, on October 24th, he writes to Morton about his desire to, to write a travel log. And he suggests, and I think he actually does write this somewhere. I, I have a memory of this existing, but I have never actually seen it. I think I searched for it and I found that it, there, there are versions of it that have been published or something that he actually wrote a travel log about Quebec. So it might be, it might be worth checking out. If, I can get, if anyone has a PDF of that, send it my way, and I'll make sure to try to include it into this podcast. Um, I'll try to find the letter. 
Oh yeah, this is really short. He only It's only a few lines. But he says he is trying to devise a Quebec travel log. Um, but not too much to say here. Um, the next one's more interesting, though. About a week later, on October 31st, he wrote a longer letter to Morton talking about geology. Um, and I think this is a continuing ex an extension of his old discussion about the caves and deep time that he got into in his previous uh, letter to him. He writes, for instance... Um, where, where is it? No, I'm not going to quote this, but he, he even makes like a point about Freud because Freud talks about like the subconscious and this deep kind of underlying history in, in people. And I think this for him is reflected in mineralogy and geology, like that Earth has the same kind of uh, subconscious and existence and, and geology is a way to get at it. The problem is it's kind of too mundane. It's too bogged down in things like classification. It doesn't have any emotional appeal for most people. So there's kind of a limit to, to how much geology can like inspire people and awaken the imagination. But he thinks he can. He does think there's something kind of magical about this. And I think it, it's tied back to this idea of deep time. Um, but then he shifts from this to talk about another example of maybe not deep time, but of, of kind of civilizations enduring into the modern age. And that's, again, obviously his, his thoughts about Quebec. He writes, the good point about the French in Quebec is that they have dwelt immemorially on the same soil amidst the same conditions and traditions. That is what makes a civilization. I'm not at all sure that they will, in the ironic deterministic mood of fate, win by chance much of the New World supremacy which they lost in battle. They cohere and persist. You cannot degalonize them. Despite all the English who have entered Quebec and settled in the southern part, the province is today more French than it was a century ago. So, um, and he talks a lot about the existence and the per perseverance of French culture, which is why he's so fascinated by this, because he thinks that's what's being lost in New England and across America as a whole. It's like that Anglo culture is being washed away by machine culture, which I think he doesn't mention at all in these letters, uh, which is striking because he talks about so much in the previous letters. Yeah, I think it doesn't come up even once in this set of letters. But previously in the year, 1930, he was really talking a lot about machine culture. But it's kind of hinted at here. It's like, how did the French do it? How did the French in Quebec do this? Um, then uh, we have a letter November 6th, also to Morton. This one is a, another big one. It's, it's, another, it's an important one. It's about four pages uh, in the selected letters. And it deals with, uh, well, it's a lot of old themes, but it's, it puts them together in an important way. It's about civilization and the cosmos, right? So again, just to repeat, his main argument about this seems to be in this indifferent universe, we have nothing kind of objective that we can really hold on to for meaning. So we can only hold on to the subjective. And for that could be individual tastes, but fundamentally this is going to have to be, if we want to be a society and a civilization, it's going to have to be that civilization, right? So it's best to kind of hold to a civilization's roots and help it endure and not mix it too much and not get away from that too much. So this is how cosmic horror fits into his arguments about race and nation, which, of course, people talk about a lot because, you know, Lovecraft being a racist is such a big point of discussion about Lovecraft today. I mean, I'm in on it, right? So I'm not, I'm not saying that's not an important conversation to have, but it's tied very intimately to what many people love about Lovecraft, and that's his cosmic horror. But it's hard to separate the two when you see how he talks about these in the letters. And this is a great example of that. Um, so, uh, quote, without this stream about us, we're absolutely adrift in the meaningless and irrelevant chaos, which has not the least capacity to give us any satisfaction apart from the trifling animal ones. Pleasure and pain, time and space, reverence and non-relevance, relevance and non-relevance, good and evil, interest and non-interest, direction and purpose, beauty and ugliness, all these words comprise virtually nothing within the scope of normal human life. Within our nationality, that is, our cultural grouping, we are merely wretched nuclei of agony and bewilderment in the midst of alien and directionless, empty, without our nationality. We are merely wretched nuclei of agony and bewilderment in the midst of alien, directionless emptiness. Now, obviously, I'm less sure than Lovecraft is that we can't have other things to grasp onto, like the Enlightenment Project, like, 
I think cosmopolitanism has something um, to can be just as strong a culture as any others. I, I mean, I just don't agree with him here. But this is where he gets this from. Uh, it may not be how it started. I, I don't think this is how he's talking about it like during World War One. But by the late 20s and 30s, he kind of merges cosmic horror with his ideas about race. I think pretty brilliantly, actually. It's it's one of it's a kind of where conservatives always come down, isn't it? It's like the typical conservative argument is we need some foundation. If we change too fast, if we just go with the flow of things, we're going to be rootless and civilization will cultures will break down. Um, but I'm pretty sure he settled this to Morton before, so it's not even new in the, in the sense of the letters to Morton. But this is a really good example of this argument. Um, so cultures become this foundations for understanding the universe. And then he always, not always, but often throws out the Hellenistic world as an example of, of kind of chaos, right? The Alexandrian kind of soup uh, that broke up the Greek world. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's a nice one. Now at the end, he 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 at the end he kind of gets back to his old conversations about the, the American Revolution, which these go these ideas go back to 1917, 1916. He writes, "I hate the rebels of 1775 because they commenced the wreckage, which is making their territory unfit for the descendants to live in." God save the king. He's still doing it. Still doing the God save the king thing. And he's only got like seven years left to live. Uh, anyways, that's more. That's a good letter, though. November 6th, uh, 1930 to Ferdinand Morton. An important one. So uh, we're getting to the end of it here. Next letter, just one, to August Derleth. This is actually one of the better Derleth letters that I've seen uh, lately, um, well, at least in this set so far. Uh, one of the better ones. Uh, he doesn't always write that much interesting to Derleth. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, I haven't read much of Derleth's work, or and I don't know what Derleth was writing to Lovecraft to, to comment too much on that. But anyways, we got a letter here dated October 1930. It's another weird thing is he often... Dates these, but these are always dated by month. I've noticed that the letters to Durleth are often dated by the month, not the, not the date. So, yeah, let me find it. Ah, here it is. Um, okay, so what he talks about here is the urban geography of Providence, right, um, and how that's an inspiration for him. So that's. That's uh, again, it's not new, but it's expressed here, I think, in pretty, uh, pretty convincingly, um, and especially because he kind of talks about his own kind of time travel and the survival of his childhood sort of haunts, um, which I which I love because he's talking about time travel to Clark Ashton Smith around the same time. But here, his main means of time travel is, of course, landscapes and urban geography. Quote, its ownership and conditions are fixed, hence it has been the same throughout my life and is always likely to stay so. I can shed the years uncannily by getting into some of my favorite childhood haunts here. In spots where nothing has changed, there is little to remind me that the date is not still 1900 or 1901 and I'm not still a boy of 10 or 11. Images and ideas and perspectives of that period flood up from my subconsciousness with such amazing vigor and volume and do not... Uh, and do much to prove the relativity and subjectivity of time. End quote. I really like it. I, I, I love that, that sentiment. I think it's, it's kind of sweet. And I think any of us who have gone back to our childhood homes and saw them changed by development, changed by, by time, or just changed by new perspectives on it. This is something I talked about a lot in the Philip Dick stuff I did years ago. Uh, maybe not years ago, a couple years ago, I finished up the PKD series. But that's a common theme, I think, in Philip Dick, like how our urban geography has changed. And maybe that's something that I think Dick and Lovecraft would have appreciated about each other. Is that they both kind of like some kind of permanence to geography. They, 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 they're uncomfortable with things changing. I just think Dick embraced it so much more than, than Lovecraft. Lovecraft sort of resisted it and had this sentiment 
about the old ways. But anyways, a nice little window into time travel. All right, so next we have two stories, uh, or two letters, I mean, uh, to Wilford Branch Tallman. Um, so not, not too much important to say about these. The, the first one, I, well, there's one important thing to mention about the, this October 3rd, 1930 letter to Tallman. Because first he talks a little bit about Tallman's story, like the, the star it's called, which, you know, this is the common thing they do is they send their stories and Lovecraft gives his opinions on them. And that's what happens here. And he just kind of praises it. But um, he said, I read many of its items with keen interest, especially the one on Fero Canyon in Texas, which piece of scenery I certainly hope will escape olorphic desecration. Um, and then this leads him into a conversation about gas companies and finally to Robert E. Howard. So we know that he just started his conversation with Robert E. Howard in, uh, I think it's 1930. Yeah, I think 1930 is the first letter from uh, to Lovecraft from Howard. Uh, so he's already easily, so this is just later that year, October 1930, and he's already really impressed by Robert E. Howard and really sees the value in his perspective, especially his Texas point of view. He writes, Howard is a chap who can give you the color, the sweep of the oil camps across the primal Texas plains and the pageantry of social developments connected with them. He does not welcome the, the coming of the derricks and the slimy black ooze, but he, scarcely, but he is acutely sensitive to their place in the long drama of the Lone Star County. Campbell and Howard are the oilest guys I know. If I came across any others, I'll pass them on. So he's talking about oil or something to uh, Tallman, some connection to this story that he just read that Tallman sent him, but this leads him to say, hey, I'm talking to this guy, Howard. And Howard's really maybe someone you should get to know. So Howard really creates a feeling for the real Texas, I guess is the way to put it. So that's, uh, that's one of these letters to Tallman. Uh, this next one was October 28th. And yeah, I'm almost in an hour here. So let me quickly uh, just, just mention this. Uh, this is about the beauty of landscapes and various distinctive cities that Lovecraft personally has um, experienced in his, his travels across America. So he mentions very specific places that he's gone to as places that have a distinct beauty in their landscape and in their, their environment. He writes, for instance, or he, no, this is just a list of cities, basically. He says, if you're looking for travelogue material, I'm by no means limited on my own. And then he just gives a list of these places he's been to. And he mentions Morton, that maybe someone he can talk to. But he thinks all of these places have a special kind of pulse, I guess. So um, then finally, we have two letters to Frank Belknap Long. Um, so the first one. Oh, this is interesting. This one's about communism. Um, oh, yeah. I, I think I may have mentioned, like, Woodburn Harris being a, a radical. And I think I got confused there. Morton definitely is a, a left-wing radical, an anarchist. But Harris isn't. Harris is a conservative. But he was, like, also at the same time talking to this guy, v, Vice. And I don't think we've even seen any letters to this Vice guy. But he's also a correspondent of Lovecraft. And... And he talks to Belong about uh, maybe Weiss and Harris being like two opposites and that maybe um, they could have some kind of conversation. Maybe there's an interesting space for a discussion between these two people. I don't know. Maybe that's a bit confusing. But anyways, this other guy he, he mentioned, Weiss, is, is kind of out there in the ether somewhere. Let me just uh, read what he says here. Um, as for our young communist, this is that Weiss guy. I have just sent Farmer Woodburn Harris of Vermont on to him and expect some brilliant fireworks. So he actually introduced the two to have a conversation. Harris is a political conservative of the traditional Yankee mold, a solid Coolidge man, and his keen wit and horse sense will form a delightful foil to young Vice's Bolshevism. I shall now proceed to send Harris the bulky letters that you have just returned so that he can take his opponent's measure. So he's actually going to send him these other Vice letters copies of them or something so he can know how to respond to Wies. Certainly Wies is a keenly intelligent and well-informed with an interesting character despite his bizarre opinions into which his overdeveloped ethical emotionalism has led him. 
Like you, I think his epistolary tomb is the least absurd defense of communism I have yet beheld. Um, so we got a lot here on his just dislike of communism, I guess. And, and it's, you know, it's not that boring, though, because the letter gets into what I think is an important question for Lovecraft and something I think he maybe would be more sympathetic to communism if he read some what, you know, maybe like Oscar Wilde's Soul of Manor Socialism. Maybe he read it. I, I don't think so. At least I don't see any evidence that he internalized those ideas at all. Um, now, I think Lovecraft partially has this feeling that like class resentment just breaks down civilizations internally in artificial ways. But the question he asks here is like, where is support for artists going to come from under socialism? And, and I guess the, usually the response... The, the anti-socialist response to this is, well, then art will just be a reflection of the values of the state, right? Which there might be good reasons to think that if you look at really existing socialism and the role of artists in them. But at the same time, what's the, what's the support for an artist under capitalism? It's the market, right? And I think both limit creativity and limit ex artistic expression in their own ways. The best system maybe for art Maybe it's not ideal either, but maybe like just broad patronage, like in the old, like in the Renaissance, where it's like some the church hires Michelangelo and says, "Oh, we'll paint this ceiling, right? Do what you want with it." You know, and of course, it's got it's still limited by its themes, but you know, you could kind of play with that, right? And to make those frescoes how we how we sort of want them to be, but even that limits your creativity in a way. Um, so anyways, there's a lot here. His economic conservatism is reflected in this letter. So I really maybe should give this letter a little bit more attention than I feel like I'm going to do just because of the time. Um, but here's what he says about this. Uh, in a few cases, individuals are so prodigiously gifted that they form a national asset and will receive a royal pension. But only exceptional aesthetics are as publicly important as all that. Generally speaking, no man can reasonably expect to get cash, food, or clothes unless he pays for them in some commodity of genuine value to others whom have them to give. So the poor artist might as well realize from the onset that he's got to work. A personal creative art is not work since it's self-expression, not adopted to other specific need if he expects to live. End quote. I, now, what bothers me about this, is I think this cuts against some of his values about like where true art is. I, I think he's sort of admitting here, you're going to get shit art if you just let the market determine it but really artists shouldn't complain because unless they're a brilliant genius they're not going to deserve kind of public support so maybe that's maybe it's like i guess the argument is the alternative is worse right the alternative would be only a few like great poets of the soviet union or something will have jobs and every all other poets will, will be working in a factory somewhere right at least now Bad art can get out there and maybe once in a while someone will do good art or you'll have some artists like Lovecraft who, you know, just can kind of scrape by a living and still fulfill their artistic vision. I don't know. I just think you'd get much more good art if, if you had some kind of base level socialism. You'd have a lot more people liberated. I guess it kind of makes me think of the universal basic income arguments, right? So it's just someone who lived his life and struggled with money and struggled to get his work out there and, and, and had to spend so much of his creative time writing these revisions and ghostwriting for people. You know, the fact they didn't have any sympathy at all for, for a broader public support for everyone, not just artists, you know, I don't know. It's, I guess it just comes down to his cultural conservatism wins out in this debate in his head. Um, he does hear those say, society isn't keeping me down, but I'm not naturally buoyant and clever enough to swim or lucky enough to float. Who's to blame? Nobody, since the great all-wise creator went out of fashion. Some happen to be fortunate, others don't, end quote. It's kind of, sort of some ennui with it, which in the midst of the Great Depression, I don't know. I just don't agree with him here. Now, this letter is also notable. Again, this is the October 17th letter to Blong is notable for having a two-page conversation about cheese and the cheese industry, if you're into that sort of thing. Talks about cottage cheese. The problem, as for the problem of cottage cheese, cottage cheese, 
This is a complex matter which one cannot hope to adjudicate intelligently if one takes too artificiality simple a view of the subject. End quote. And it's kind of wild. He does manage to get two whole pages out of cheese and the decline of the quality of cheese and where good cheese is and the problem of modern science and cheese and all that. It's kind of wild. Then we have a, a November 3rd letter too long, uh, which talks about the marketing of fiction and, uh, and Lovecraft's uh, trip to Quebec. And it also, this is great because I did a whole series on France and England and North America, Francis Parkman's massive work. You might remember it if you followed this channel. I don't think it was a very popular series, but I did go through all like 3,000 pages of, of those, those seven volumes, and I had a lot of fun doing it, and I really liked it. Um, but Lovecraft, after going to Quebec, tells his friend Long this. At present, excited by Quebec, I'm going to go over the history of New France, Parkman, etc. How I wish old Mac were around to discuss it with. End quote. So, uh, great. It's a wonderful moment. I don't know if he actually read it, uh, all, all the pages of it. He also said he's going to read some others, but he mentioned Parkman specifically here as someone who's going to read. So, I just thought I'd mention that, you know, it seems likely that Lovecraft at least read something that I read and... And hopefully we both got a lot of pleasure out of it. So that's it. That's the next 20 letters. Again, this covered the, basically the autumn of, of 1930. The next uh, series of letters I'm going to look at will be, I'll be again another, it'll be once again a chunk of 20 letters, but I'll cover November through January, uh, the winter of 1930 uh, to 1931. So that's it. So uh, I've been going on long enough. So I'll leave it to you to give your own comments about these letters or any of these themes that, that came up or anything you think I'm getting wrong about Lovecraft's overall perspective. Uh, share your thoughts with me. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or, or send, uh, leave a review on iTunes or contact me on Twitter. Um, I'm easy to reach. So that'll be it for now. So I look forward to continuing this exploration of Lovecraft's uh, letters from the late 20s and early 30s in the, in the next episode. Um, so thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you then. Please don't let me lose my